Hey everybody, this is Caitlin, and you're listening to the Her Head in Films podcast. My name is Caitlin, and I'm your host. Um, For those who are new to the podcast, or if this is the first episode that you've listened to, I just want to give you a little backstory on the title. Uh, The title came from an email that I sent a friend a few years ago. It was during a time when I was intensely obsessed with cinema. And with films and um i usually always am obsessed with films but i go through periods periods when it's a bit more intense and so in that email i said that my head wasn't in the clouds my head was in films and so that's how the phrase was born and it was sort of an inside joke between the two of us and then i decided Uh, recently that I wanted to start a film podcast because I enjoy talking about films and I live in a rural area in the south and so I don't really have people to talk to about cinema and so I'm pretty isolated and so I decided I want to start a podcast and so this is what I created the Her Head in Films podcast this episode is dedicated to my favorite films that I watched in 2016. Some of those films were made, in, well not made, but were released in 2016. And then some of those films are from the past because I like to watch both. I love to watch the new releases and then I also like to watch the classics or the the films from, you know, a few years ago. Um, so. Um, my other podcast that I did, my other episodes, I'd written a script beforehand. I had written out what I wanted to say. And for this, I thought it would be more interesting just to uh, talk spontaneously, to let my thoughts meander, to see what could be generated and what could come to the surface if I just let myself talk in a more spontaneous and unmediated, unscripted way. And so... If the podcast uh, episode seems a bit all over the place, um, or it seems a bit unorganized, or if I'm sort of going on tangents, that's why. Because I kind of just want this to be like a conversation. Of course, it's a one-way conversation, but I would like it to be conversational and casual. So I made out a list of films. Um, I went back through um, everything I had watched, because... I uh, I collect it, you know, I, I make a list of what I watch, and so I chose films that have stayed with me and that have affected me, and so I'm just going to talk about them. Okay, the first film I want to talk about um, was a really important film for me, and it was No Home Movie by Chantal Ackerman. And I'm going to talk about her quite a bit in this podcast. I may even make a podcast just about Chantal. Um, She did die last year. She reportedly committed suicide. Um, Possibly it was connected to the death of her mother. uh, Possibly to depression, obviously. But that depression may have been worsened and triggered by the death of her mother. We don't have a lot of details about what happened. I think she is a monumental figure in cinema. Um, She's certainly an important figure to me, and I enjoy her films. No Home Movie, which I got to see this year, was her last film. 
and um, it was about her mother. Um, it's a it consists of uh, shots of her mother um, in her final years, I guess you could say. Her mother was a Holocaust survivor, but she didn't really talk about it. Um, so, No Home Movie is filled with scenes of Chantal talking to her mother, um, both in person at her mother's home and through Skype or through um, the computer. And it's a very moving portrait, especially when you know that her mother died and then she died. Um, it just, I think I probably would have watched it in a different way if Chantal had been alive. But knowing that they both were gone, um, it's almost like a like a last will and testament or something. It's it's haunting. It's ghostly. Um, to see Chantal there and to see the tender moments that she has with her mother, to hear her mother talk about how much she loves her and in one conversation it's through Skype or something and her mother talks about wanting to reach out and hold her and um, a lot of it reminded me of my relationship with my own mom and um, how close we are. We're very close and so I think No Home Movie is very moving, very moving and um, connected to that I also watched um, I Don't Belong Anywhere the cinema of Chantal Ackerman which is also a recent film from this year and it was a documentary about Chantal before she died and in it Chantal talked about how she felt like a lot of her movies were really about her mother and that once her mother died she kinda felt like well what do I have to say now um, and um that's that's very powerful to hear her say that to hear her say that the death of her mother almost was like the death of herself as a creative person I guess and the film is very illuminating about Chantal's um, philosophy as a filmmaker um, her movies are especially her documentaries I would describe them as slow they're um, very static shots, um, ambient sound, there's not any kind of music to a lot of them. Um, she said in the documentary about her that she doesn't, she wants people to go into her films and you know how you'll say, um, oh time flew by, you know the film just kind of flew by. Well she doesn't want that. She wants you to um, feel time passing in her films and um, and that's why she that's why she uses the ambient sound that's why she she does very long shots I guess you would call it I don't know all the right terminology um, but yeah like long shots she'll she'll linger on a particular thing for a very long time and some people are frustrated by that or they may say, well, nothing happens. Nothing happens in her films. Well, there is something happening. There's always something happening. I mean, you put a camera on anything and 
something's happening. So it's just slower, you know, it's a slower kind of cinema. I don't think I don't think it's for everybody. You know, I don't think it's an aesthetic that everybody appreciates and loves. Am I always in the mood for a film like that? No. I mean, just the other day I watched Single White Female. You know, it's like a 90s thriller because that's what I wanted. And then, you know, I'm about to start Lav Diaz's Melancholia, which is like five or six hours long, you know. So, uh, you know, sometimes I want a film that's much more traditional and is much more exciting, I guess you could say, or thrilling or suspenseful. And then other times I want films that are slow and that are about the human condition. So it just depends on what you like, you know. Um, another Chantal Ackerman film that I watched this year was From the East. And it was a film that she did uh, in the 90s, I think, about the Soviet Union. And um, it's a lot of um, long shots. Um, especially at like train stations. I mean, it's just it's just this long line of humanity just waiting for a train, you know. But I found it really compelling and the light in it was just gorgeous. I don't know, the Soviet Union fascinates me. Soviet cinema is just astounding, you know, if you really watch some of it. Like the cranes are flying and um, what was another one? Letter Never Sent. Um, the Ascent, Ballad of a Soldier. Um, there's so many good Soviet films. Ugh. I need to watch more of them because they really fascinate me. But I, Ackerman was so monumental and it makes me really sad that we lost her. Um, a really important film that I watched this year by her was South, or Sued, I guess is the French word. Um, and it's a film that she made, a documentary that she made in Texas um, about the death of James Byrd Jr., who was an African-American man um, who was killed in the late 90s. Um, his body was dragged um, behind a truck. It was, a, it was attached to a truck, and he was dragged down a country road in Jasper, Texas, and parts of his body came off as he was dragged. I mean, he was literally destroyed, um, and his body disintegrated for the most part. And it was racially motivated. It was a hate crime. And he was killed by three white supremacists, three racists. And it was a shocking crime. I still remember, like, when it happened, I was probably maybe nine years old or ten. And I remember when it happened. And, um, her, she originally wanted to do a documentary about the South because she likes William Faulkner and she liked his books, but then the James Byrd Jr. murder happened and so her focus immediately went to, to that. And the great thing about her cinema is its ability to capture reality. I, I live in the South. I was born, raised, I live in the South. And there's so many stereotypes about it. And it's so marginalized, you know. It's very, very marginalized. And 
it's actually a very diverse place. Um, is there racism? Absolutely. Um, and it's a big problem. But it's actually very racially diverse. Um, you know, where I grew up, I saw Muslims. Where I grew up, I saw African Americans. I saw Asian people. Just because you live in a rural area of the South doesn't mean you're not exposed to different kinds of people. Because I certainly was. Um, so there is diversity in this region. And I don't feel like it's captured adequately often but I felt like with South Chantal really did that and she went to the horror of what happened to James Bird Jr. she filmed at his funeral she filmed people speaking at his funeral um, Bird's sister wrote a poem that um, she read she spoke to people in the community, other African-American people. She, um, and then the final shot of the film is of, is of the road that Bird was dragged down. And it's, it lasts for almost 10 minutes. And it's one of the most unsettling, uh, horrifying things I've ever seen. And there's not a drop of blood. There's nothing. It's just her camera on that road. And on the road are these circles. And it's where the police or the crime scene technicians, it's where they put a circle around uh, bits of his body that were found on that road. And those circles are still there. At least when she did the film, they were there. I don't know if they're there to this day. And all she does is point her camera on that road and she takes that trip that that he would have taken and shows those circles and it was chilling it was blood chilling to think of what he endured and what he suffered and what makes it even more shocking is the the beauty of the area because you're talking about the rural south and i find the rural south very beautiful you know, verdant grass and meadows and trees and woods and the sun setting and it was just gorgeous and then there was this horror. So the juxtaposition of of this race, this racist violence um, against the landscape of the South, which is actually very gorgeous. Um, it holds that contradiction because that is the South, like to live here is to always grapple with racism. Always. It is here. It is embedded in the structure of our society. And that's throughout the United States. But in the South in particular, you know, there's a great deal of bigotry and racism down here. Which makes me ashamed, you know, to live here. But I've, I've been to the Northeast and, you know, there's racism there too. It's it really is embedded in the fabric of, of, you know, the United States. But Ackerman was able to get at the truth of that murder, the truth of that racial violence in a way that, in a way that I had just not seen before. I felt it. I felt it when I watched it. And um, that was her gift, I think. It really was. It was a gift. She was gifted and she was a genius. And um, 
I mean, aren't we fortunate to have her films? I mean, we really are, because she made such diverse things. I mean, she goes from making a documentary about the Soviet Union to about a murder in, in Texas. I mean, that's range, isn't it? You know, it's... Uh, and then she does something very personal, like with No Home Movie, which is about her mother. And so, the the breadth of her work, you know, the the spaciousness of her vision is is something to marvel at and to learn from. And um, I just, I can't believe she's gone, really, you know. Um, another film that I watched this year was um, was Daughters of the Dust by Julie Dash, and this was a gorgeous film. Like, I am shocked and I'm outraged that Julie Dash hasn't made another film, another feature film. Um, it's criminal. It is criminal. The artists who have been held back. Ugh, I can't even deal with it. And um. It's about a community on the coast of South Carolina, another southern film, um, and it's about that community having to leave their home and and um, I think I guess go to the mainland. It's like an island off South Carolina, and um, really about how a way of life is coming to an end and about the women of the community. And it really centers uh, a black women's subjectivity and their lives. And the cinematography is very dreamy. It's a very dreamy film. It takes place at like the turn of the 20th century. Um, perhaps a little bit earlier. And it's just gorgeous. And of course you have Beyonce's Lemonade that came out this year and um, was inspired by Daughters of the Dust and had a huge impact on getting Daughters of the Dust back into uh, maybe the national spotlight and I did like Lemonade. Um, I, I'm a Beyonce fan. I'm not a rabid Beyonce fan um, but I do enjoy her music. Um, I don't know if the songs were as strong as I would have liked them to be, but I think what makes Lemonade are the visuals, are the the music videos and the Lemonade movie that she created. I thought that was very strong. Um, I mean, I think we'll look back in years from now and say, wow, wasn't that a monumental moment, you know? And I think it, it is very artistic what she did. and. You know, I enjoyed watching it, and I loved that it was inspired by Daughters of the Dust. And I thought she really honored um, the legacy of that film with Lemonade. I really want Julie Dash to do more films. Like, that needs to happen. I hope it does. Okay. I'm coming to a major, major, major film that I loved and that I saw this year. It was actually released last year in 2015. Um, but it's called uh, Mon Monwa. Oh god, I took French for years. It's called, it means my king, but I'm not sure how to pronounce it. Monroy? You see, I don't think it's Monroy. Monroy? Monroy? 
my mouth can't even make the sound y'all okay do not laugh at me I'm sure you're laughing at me but it's my king that's what it would be like in my head I can pronounce it and then I try to pronounce it with my mouth and it's like a disaster so forgive me I took French for years 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 and I still can't do it but it has Vincent Cassell in it um oh god what's the main actress's name don't make me do this I'm looking y'all I'm looking Emmanuel Burcott. Okay. Louis Guerrero, who I love. Okay. No, but this was a major film for me. It was probably one of my favorites of the year, that, or of the past few years. Burcott plays a woman who um, was in a relationship with Cassell's character. And I love Vincent Cassell. Oh my god. One of the most um gorgeous men ever <laughs> very sexy um they're in a relationship together and it's actually a very toxic abusive relationship and the film is about her she's in rehab for her knee she hurts her knee in an accident and she's in rehab and she's thinking over and remembering her relationship with Vincent Cassell um, who she's broken up with but they have a child together and it's about the damage the psychological damage of that relationship it's about how women how this woman in particular but women in general get ensnared in very toxic relationships it starts off beautiful it starts off um, like such a great relationship and then it just gradually disintegrates and gradually becomes uglier and uglier and the director uh, may win um, is able to show the progression of that relationship and just how toxic it is and how uh, Burcott's character is almost helpless in the face of it. That she sees what he's doing. She sees the damage. And yet she cannot extricate herself from it. She cannot let go of him. And um, so I don't, I just, I just viscerally related to that film. And like, I just thought it was so well done. It's a bit long, you know, but it's, it just felt very real to me. It felt very relevant for women, for many women, and what women go through in relationships with men, and how men treat them, and how they don't always know how to get out of it, you know, where they can't see it. They can't see the toxic um, nature of it and it's right in front of them but they can't see it so if you get a chance to see my king you definitely should because it's just so 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 powerful 
like I want to just shout it from the rooftops. I love that film. It's one of my favorites of the year for sure. Okay. I'm looking at my list. Um, I watched some Ozu this year for the first time. So I saw Tokyo Story and I saw Late Spring. And how can you not love Setsuko Hara, right? Did I even say that right? Setsuko Hara. Okay. I hope I said that right. But both of those films have her in them. And um, she has such a luminous presence, you know. And Ozu's films are so quietly devastating at times. Quietly powerful. Um, very Japanese, as I read one reviewer say. Um, might have been Paul Schrader. They're very Japanese and they're very attuned to the nuances of Japanese culture. And... Um, you know, daughters marrying off and how you treat elders and how you treat older people. And I really enjoyed his films. I didn't expect, I, I mean, I didn't know what I would feel when I watched Ozu. But I was really impressed. I was really impressed. I loved Late Spring. Late Spring was my favorite. Because it was about um, Setsuko Hara's character, Noriko. Um, her father wants her to get married because she's that age, you know, she's like my age, she's like 27, and he just expects her to get married and he thinks that's what will make her happy and she's not really that interested in getting married. She, um, her mother's dead, I think, and she's very close to her father and she enjoys the life that she has with her father. And, um... She she doesn't see this this need to get married, you know. She just wants the life with her father to remain the way it is. But he, of course, um, he feels he's holding her back. He feels that she needs to be taken care of. You know, there will come a time when he isn't there. So I thought it was an interesting movie about the relationship between fathers and daughters. And, um... I was very moved by it, personally, and, um, I probably projected things onto it, um, because my father, um, passed away. My father, um, my father's been dead ten years now, but I'm very close to my mother, and I live with my mother, um, and I'm 27, and I don't have any desire to change that. Like, I'm not out dating and trying to find someone, you know. I enjoy being with my mother and having our life together. And so, in many ways, I sort of saw myself in Noriko. Even though I might be projecting something they onto that that isn't there. Um, I thought it was, I thought Noriko was an interesting character. And I thought, I kind of wished people would let her be 
what she wanted to be. Because some people do like to live with their parents. I mean, Ozu lived with his mother until he died. She died before he did. I mean, he was 60. I mean, he lived with his mother from the age of... Until the age of 60. Until he died. So, some people don't feel a need to really... Um, to leave their parents. And it might be odd to some people, but... I think you need to kind of create family the way you need to create it, you know. It's not for everybody to go out and date and find a spouse and have children. Some people don't want that, you know. I kind of consider myself a spinster. I mean, I kind of embrace that label, I guess. Like, I don't really, I don't have any interest in those things, so... That's just me, though. <laughs> um, another film I watched this year was Taste of Cherry. Let me take a sip of water. This is getting long. I just couldn't edit. I couldn't take things off my list. But, um... I watched Taste of Cherry the day that Abbas Kurostami died. Oh gosh. Apologize for that if you heard that. Um, he died on July 4th, so I'll always remember that. Um, and I had seen Close Up, which I love. Um, Close Up is one of my favorite films ever. I love Kurostami. I love a, a, Iranian cinema, or Iranian cinema. Um, I just love it. I don't know why. It's just, I love it. Um, I'm trying to watch more Iranian cinema. But Kurostami is the giant, right? I mean, uh, his films are so full of humanity. And Taste of Cherry is about a man who is trying to kill himself and he's trying to find someone who will bury his body basically and he asks various people to do it and um of course they're horrified you know they don't want to do it and he literally is has dug the grave and he's going to go and lay in it and kill himself. And he wants, um, he wants that person to, to bury him, you know. So it's about someone who's very desperate, who's very unhappy with life. And who doesn't want to go on living. And so it's a very interesting premise. And... I think a lot of people can relate to it. Um, the main character, the man, his his depression or his reason for wanting to die is withheld. We don't know. We don't know. Does he have a a fatal illness? Um, did his wife leave him? You know, did a did somebody he loved die? Um, we don't we don't know the reason for his wanting to kill himself which makes it a bit of a mystery doesn't it? it makes it sort of mysterious um 
Guru Stami knew he knew how to tell human stories. Stories that you don't have to be Iranian to relate to them or to feel something when you watch them. Of course, they are specific to Iranian society and to Iran, of course. Um, they're born, they're birthed from that society, from the repressive nature of some of, you know, of Iranian society. Um, the Iranian government, you know, um, the censorship, the repression that, you know, Kiristami dealt with. Um, but at the same time, they've had such international reach because the themes of his films reach beyond the borders. They reach beyond, um, that's what great cinema does, doesn't it? It crosses borders. Um, that's why I love foreign films. That's why I don't understand people that don't like foreign films. It's a way to reach beyond your borders, to erase borders, right? You know, like you see that these people are human. I mean, my Lord, I, I fear for people who only think of Iran as, uh, as, as, as the bad guy or something. I mean, if you think about how Iran is represented in mainstream media or in the U.S. media, it's like, it's this very scary place. It's, um, oh, it's the Ayatollah and it's, and it's repressive and it's dangerous and, oh, they want nuclear weapons. And I'm just saying this is what you get off the news. You know what I mean? You get very simplistic, one-dimensional, um representations of Iran you know it's like this scary place you know oh these are the bad guys the evil doers right um, and that's not true at all I mean I remember I was sort of that's what I sort of thought of Iran for a while like I didn't know better you know I was like a teenager I didn't know anything about Iran and I watch I watched Rick Steves uh, show on PBS Rick Steves um, you know he goes to different countries and he went to Iran and it was the most eye-opening thing I'd ever seen in my life here I was thinking this was like like a scary country just because I went off you know the news the mainstream media oh, they want nuclear weapons, you know, or, or something like that. Like, I just thought, oh, this is a bad place for some reason. I mean, I'm ashamed to admit it. Um, and I watched Rick Steve go to Iran, and it was gorgeous. I mean, it just showed these beautiful places. And and then I started watching Kurostami's work, and, and now I just, um, and I've seen some Farhadi, you know, films and I just really love it like I'm really interested in the culture and um but isn't that the great thing about art and cinema and stuff like you can reach beyond your prejudices you know I'm not I'm not above it you know I especially when I was younger you know and and um you know I hadn't learned as much or read as much I wasn't as much of a critical thinker um, you know, 
I'm not above it. I'm not, you know. I'm willing to admit that, wow, I've had moments where I've just really learned things and had my mind opened and I've tried to to expand my mind continuously. It's it's a process, you know. And, you know, when I was younger in Islam and especially after 9-11, it's like maybe I had negative thoughts about Islam too, you know, because I didn't know better and I wasn't educating myself properly. And I started to do that. You know, and when I was in high school, one of the teachers was Muslim, and she came to one of our classes, and she was from Afghanistan, and she talked about her life, and she talked about, you know, the five pillars of Islam, and and um, and that was also the beginning, you know, of learning more about Muslims, and, and um, that was really important, you know, and so we have to constantly do that and I don't understand people who don't want to know about the world who don't want to know about people who are different because I do I've always been interested in other cultures and other religions and I've always I've never wanted to be ignorant you know and um I, I hope that I'm just always open-minded you know I never want to be fearful of other people or other cultures and I'm grateful to cinema I'm really grateful to cinema because it gives you a chance to really you know look at other people and to see them as human you know because that's a big problem in the world today is that dehumanization the dehumanization of Syrians of Syrian refugees the dehumanization of Iraqis and what we did to that country, we in the United States, and the dehumanization of Muslims on a huge scale. Um, and our, our president-elect, I don't know what's coming. I really don't. And it's a, it's a scary time, but I think there's so much hatred and there's so much bigotry. It's like we have to keep educating. We have to keep educating ourselves. We have to keep educating others, and I think cinema could be part of that. It could be part of that education, and um, I hope, you know. Okay, oh my god, that was my little detour. Detour about my own prejudices, <laughs> um, but but I'm not okay with being ignorant. You know what I mean. I've never been okay with it, and I've always tried to learn more about other people, always. But Taste of Cherry is such a powerful film, and I just, I, I can't recommend it enough, and Close Up. And I hope to watch more Kiarostami, really. I really, I still have so many of his films to watch, but I want to. A film I watched this year too, and I think with the Jackie movie coming up, the film about Jacqueline Kennedy, you're going to hear more about Pablo Lorraine. And so I watched one of his films this year called The Club, and it was very intense. It's an intense film, and it came out last year. And um, he's a Chilean director, 
and it's about uh this place this house where um priests are taken who were accused of sexual molestation and so all of these priests live in this house that's where the church has sent them um and one of the priests his victims finds out about the house and shows up there and he's a very wounded traumatized man and um he confronts them and so it's a disturbing film it's about you know the sexual abuse scandals within the catholic church how the catholic church has dealt with sexual abuse which obviously is not a good in not a good way and it was interesting that I watched it because I also watched Spotlight this year which was about the sexual abuse scandal in Boston um, that the Boston Globe uh, journalists uncovered so it was interesting to watch those two films because in one it's South America and the Catholic Church and then of course um, Spotlight is about North America and the Catholic Church and how the sexual abuses were covered up, how the priests weren't properly punished, the priests weren't kicked out basically, you know, they were just moved from parish to parish and allowed to, um, allowed to harm more people. Um, so both of those films are good. I mean, I didn't love Spotlight. I don't think it's like the best film ever or anything. But it was good. I thought The Club by Pablo Lorraine was very powerful. And, um, like, what do you do? What do you do when that happens to you? I don't know. I really don't know. But it's really about the damage and the trauma. Another film that I liked, um, it hasn't really been talked about much, but Ava Nova. It's a Slovenian film. It's uh, set in Slovenia. And you don't see many of those, do you? Um, I was able to see it through Festival Scope. I think it's still showing. But it's about Ava Nova, the title character, and she's she used to be an actress, and she's... Um, trying to reestablish a connection with her son but her son isn't really open to it and so it's about that really strained and troubled relationship between a mother and her son it's also about ageism in the film industry because Ava is older she's probably about 60 I guess and she's trying to continue her career as an actress but she's not really able to because she's older and she can't really get a role she can't get anybody to hire her um, and it's it's really about this woman getting older and about how she sees herself and it's just it's hard to explain but the actress in the film that plays Ava Nova she just does this brilliant job of showing a woman who is coping with getting older um, and who's obviously trying to reestablish that connection with her son. It's like a little gem. It's like one of those little films that 
you're probably not really going to hear about, except for me, I guess. Um, but I think it's worth your time if you're able to see it. I think it's still in festival scope, so you might want to check it out. I like it. Going down my list. Let me take some more, another swig of water. Um, I watched a few film documentaries this year, which I really liked. I liked um, Hitchcock Truffaut, which was about the interview between Hitchcock and Truffaut. But Truffaut uh, was a French director, as many of you probably know Francois Truffaut. He did 400 Blows, and he's one of my favorite directors. I love, I love him. Um, he really was in love with Alfred Hitchcock's work. And before Truffaut took an interest in it, Hitchcock was sort of seen as a director for the masses. You know, he was somebody that, um, you know, just did these interesting, suspenseful films. He wasn't necessarily considered an auteur or an artist, an artist, you know. And in, in the early 1960s, it might have been 63 or 62, Truffaut interviewed Hitchcock, and um, uh, they eventually put a book out. And Truffaut was pivotal and essential in cementing Hitchcock's reputation as a major figure in film. As someone who was an artist, who was an auteur, who was doing something very profound and innovative with cinema. So Truffaut really cements Hitchcock's reputation as an art house director, as somebody that other auteurs, other filmmakers, serious art house filmmakers can look to for inspiration. And the film is really about that, you know. And I thought it was a good film. I felt like I learned a lot. Um, and actually, a lot of people may not realize it, but Hitchcock and Truffaut remained friends up until, you know, uh, one of them died. Whoever died first, I don't know right now. Um, they would write to each other. They wrote letters. They would consult each other about one another's films. So they actually had a friendship and a great bond. And speaking of Hitchcock, I also saw Ingrid Bergman in her own words, which consists of Ingrid Bergman's, um, her diaries and the home movies and the movies that she made. A lot of people don't realize that she, she took a lot of, made a lot of movies, home movies. Um, her father was a photographer and that's probably where it started. And she was very attached uh, to her home movies and she moved a lot throughout her life um, you know moved to different places in Europe moved to Sweden uh, she was very peripatetic um, and she would always take her home movies with her they were very crucial to her in her diaries she always loved those things with her around the world no matter where she was living and it's such it's a luminous film it's very beautiful to watch 
the colors of her whole movies are very gorgeous. And it's also an insightful documentary about Ingrid Bergman. I didn't know much about her. It was a huge scandal when she married Roberto Rossellini. Uh, she paid dearly for it, but she eventually did make a comeback. And it's really about a woman dedicated to her craft. Ingrid Bergman loved acting, whether it was in films or on stage. She was an actress and she loved it. She dearly, dearly loved acting. Give me one minute. doing this so um and it's like after midnight nothing weird about this at all me laying in the dark um uh, talking to myself right <laughs> um she loved acting and um she and it features interviews with her children with roberto rosalini jr and, and Pia, who she had with her Swedish husband, and Isabella Rosalini. Um, and they don't attack her. You know, they don't put her down as a mother. But they do admit that they wish that they could have spent more time with her. She kind of, you know, she left Pia with the Swedish ex-husband. And then she married Roberta Rosalini, right? Well, then when the relationship with Rosalini goes to pieces, well, then she leaves the children that she had with Rosalini and marries another man. And so she wasn't always in her children's lives. She wasn't always there. Now, of course, we don't judge men who do that. We don't judge Roberto Rosalini, do we? Because he wasn't necessarily in his children's lives every single day of every month of every year you know but a huge burden falls on women to be the central caretaker but when you're an artist and when you're Ingrid Bergman it just doesn't work that way and she was very dedicated to her craft um, it's a very complex portrait of her and um, it's great to see Isabella Rosalini it's great to it's great to get that insight about her not to mention, you know, her diary entries and <coughs> her home movies. So if you're someone who's interested in her, you'll love it. I mean, you'll learn a lot about her. And it'll really give you a sense of who she was. <clears throat> I rewatched uh rewatched La Ventura this year by Michelangelo Antonioni. Um, I don't even know if I'm saying that right. I don't even know how to talk about La Ventura. I just want to make a note that I did watch it. And I re-watched it, actually. I watched it several years ago. Probably 2011. And I'll say it again. I tweeted it at the time. But it's an experience. You know, La Ventura is, like, more than cinema. I don't even know what it is. Um... It's a mood. It's a feeling. It's an experience. It's 
It's incredibly existential. And it's incredibly impactful. You know, I still remember when I watched it the first time. And watching it the second time, it didn't lose any, any of its power at all. And I know, I, I know I'm using that word a lot, power or powerful. I don't know how else to describe things sometimes. <laughs> but La Aventura is about, um, it's about so much, isn't it? Like, what do you even say? And has Monica Vitti. I mean, what more do you need? Uh, Monica Vitti is my everything. And um, it's about a woman who goes on vacation and she goes missing. And her best friend and her fiancé shack up and get together in the wake of her disappearance. And she is never found. We don't know what happens to this woman. But the most impactful part of the film for me is when they're on the island. They go, um, so they're on, you know, a vacation. And they go on the water in a boat. And they go to an island. And it's this very rocky, almost volcanic, apocalyptic looking thing. It's just, you know, uh, it's just rocks. You know, rocks and cliffs everywhere. And she, that's where she disappears. And there is something so lonely about that island. Something, to me, it felt like a metaphor almost. Like a metaphor for life. You know, that we are alone. We are abandoned. Um, like the, the smallness of humanity against the vastness of nature. Against the brutality of nature. Um... You know, the waves crash against the rocks and and um, they search and they search and they can't find her. They don't know, did she drown? You know, what happened? That central mystery and that central puzzle that's never solved is so compelling. And, and, these, and his movies are about empty people about people that can't make connections people who don't really know love who don't understand what love is though they think they do or they think sex is love and there's something very empty about his about those characters and they're supposed to be empty they're beautiful they're rich and they're hollow you know they're shells of people and that in itself says something about the human condition i think and that inability to connect, that inability to find meaning, you know? I still think about that film. I still, those images from that film will always be, like, in my head. You know what I mean? Oh, God. I love Love and Terror. On to the next film. Um, I got to see a really good film uh, called The Measure of a Man. And it's on Netflix right now. Um, and it's by Stefan Brise. And um, it's a... I, the French really know how to do films about class. And it's a film about class. It's about a man um, in France who's uh, trying to find a job, basically. Um, he got, I guess he got laid off at one job and he goes through like this job training class and um, 
apparently he he took this course and he learned it and then he's not really able to find a job in the thing that he trained at um, he ends up taking a job at a, a grocery store or some kind of like superstore where um, basically he's supposed to like spy on the employees he's like a security guard at, the, at this grocery store and uh, one of the women who's a cashier she steals some coupons I think yeah it's so he works there and he basically sort of mans the uh, also the uh, security footage you know it's really about how modern workers are under the under surveillance all the time it's about the modern economy where it's very difficult to find a job um, even if you have training even if you have a degree you may not necessarily be able to find a job um, it's about the humiliation it is about the degradation and humiliation of the modern worker and and how the modern worker has very little power the power is in the hands of the corporations and the companies and in the employers not the employees um, it's it's a really great film and you should absolutely watch it if you like the Dar the Dardan brothers if you like films about class and class struggle and the working class then this is the film for you for sure it's really great I mean I put it up there with two days one night which was by the Dardan brothers um, in terms of one of the best films about class and about capitalism modern capitalism and what it's doing and how it's eroding our humanity and our souls you know and how so many people are in jobs that pay very little that ask a lot of you in terms of your emotional mental and physical health and do not pay you enough um so that's that's a film that you would definitely want to see another film um, that I really liked was The Innocence it's also called Agnes Day uh, but but here in the United States we're calling it The Innocence um, it's also uh, probably one of the more important films of 2016 because um, because it's based on a true story uh, the story came to light through the diary of a nurse who worked uh, who worked with the Red Cross I think during World War two it's about a uh, Polish nuns who were raped by Soviet soldiers when Poland was liberated from the Germans from the Nazis during World War Two, it's about what happens to those women who were raped and many of them were impregnated and they become pregnant by those Soviet soldiers and it's about the head of the 
the convent and what she does to the to those babies and um it's a shocking story i didn't know about it i mean of course i knew that soviet soldiers raped a lot of women um in world war Two, they raped them in germany and they raped them in poland and rape is often not talked enough about as a tool of war and um a form of violence i mean we talk about world war Two. we talk about the holocaust we talk about um you know the bombing of dresden we talk about those forms of violence but we don't talk about the sexual violence enough and what women went through it's almost secondary i guess it's not seen as like a valid form of violence but it absolutely is and so this film is really telling sort of a forgotten history and a forgotten story this year was the year that I finally watched uh, the Decalogue by Kishlovsky um, Kishlovsky um, I do have a episode dedicated to the Decalogue uh, which you can find on my page uh, on the Her Head and Films podcast page. It's the second episode. Um, so I won't go into a huge, huge depth about Decalogue because I've already done that. But it was a very profound experience for me. It was one I'll never forget. It's a series that I will come back to. And the Decalogue was basically a TV a cycle of films of one-hour films of 10 one-hour films that aired on Polish television in the late night in the late 1980s and it focuses on ordinary people it's inspired by the Ten Commandments but sort of loosely you know I every I mean different episodes are connected to different commandments but it's not literal you know but they deal with um, all kinds of subjects, you know, from infidelity and death um, to the Holocaust. There is a decalogue about the Holocaust um, to um, to chance and fate and absurdity and um, and uh, murder and and so it really. Kishlovsky wasn't afraid to go into basically everything almost abortion you know it's just like every conceivable facet of the human condition is sort of part of that series um, it, there's a lot to find in it and there's a lot of richness and um, it's about people living in in bleak difficult circumstances um, about how they do their best. And there's one about love. You know, there's a brief um, short film about love that's part of it too. So, so there's love, there's death, there's violence, there's just about everything that's part of the human condition in the series. But it's not trying to instruct you or moralize, you know. I don't think that's what Kishlovsky was trying to do, you know. He was just trying to tell stories about people and um, to illuminate the lives of ordinary people in Poland and, um, and I think he did a great job <laughs> so 
Kishlovsky is definitely one of my favorite directors. On we go. Well, I can't not mention Ava DuVernay's documentary, 13th. It's on Netflix, so please watch it. It's about the prison industrial complex. It's about racism. It's about mass incarceration. It's about how the 13th Amendment of the Constitution abolished slavery and servitude except for people who had been convicted of crimes and of prisoners and criminals. And so the prison became a new form of slavery. It became a continuation of slavery and it continues to the present day. Um, you know, more than two million people are incarcerated in the United States, much more than any other country per capita. And it is a tool of racism. Um, it just is, you know, that's the prison industrial complex is in service to white supremacy and racism. And it is a form of state violence against people of color. So you should definitely watch that documentary because um, it's all about that. It's all about the history of it. it. Has all kinds of great activists and writers and academics um, who illuminate all of it and all the facets of it. And um, yeah, I can't recommend it enough. I watched another good documentary called Hypernormalization by Adam Curtis and um, it's about three hours long. It's really long. But if you want to understand how we got to this point where Donald Trump is going to be the uh, President of the United States, then you might want to check it out. Um, it's about I mean, on the surface, it's about well, why is the world the way it is? Why is everything going batshit crazy? You know what I mean? Like, what is going on? <laughs> and um, Curtis basically argues that what we've been led to believe is real is not. Um, that there are forces at work that we don't see that have made the world what it is, you know. Why are these things happening and why is nobody doing anything about them? Why are governments helpless? Why, you know, why do we know about climate change but we're not doing anything about it, you know? It's about how power operates, you know. It's it's a big documentary. It, it's it's asking really big questions and it's actually giving you answers. It's saying, well, this is how we got to this point. This is how we got here. Um, you know, different leaders, Henry Kissinger, um, you know, different um, things that happened during the Reagan years. It's, it's about uh, choices that governments made and and the media and um, it's so vast like I think I need to rewatch it because there's so much involved in it and it's like where do you even begin how do I even talk about it you can't talk about it you just have to watch it if you're able to 
And you may disagree with some of the things Curtis, is, Curtis says or Curtis um, focuses on, but it's if you're looking for some answers, if you're looking to understand a little bit better the world we live in, then I think that's the documentary that you're looking for. If you're somebody who is just not sure how we got to this point, you know, um, that's a good place to start, I think. Two films that I want to talk about, independent, American independent films, that I think are definitely under the radar right now. One is Cresha, and um, I'm not alone in praising this film because John Waters uh, called it his favorite film of the year, and I, I think it definitely deserves that. Um, it's about a woman, an older woman. Cresha, the title character, and um, she has a substance abuse problem, and she's had a very fractured relationship with her son. It's about her coming uh, to a family gathering. I think it's Thanksgiving, because she's trying to cook a turkey. Um, it's about her trying to reestablish a connection. It's sort of like Ava Nova a bit, with her son, with her family. She's trying to convince them that she's changed, that she's better, that she's different. And of course, we all know that that isn't true, right? Do people ever really change? Maybe they do at times, maybe at times they don't. It's about the epic disaster of that family gathering. So if you're interested in dysfunctional family um, movies, that could be one that you'd be interested in. But it's much deeper than that. This is not about, well, let's look at the spectacle of a dysfunctional family. This is about a woman who has caused enormous damage. This is about a woman who is herself enormously damaged. Um, at one point, one of the characters says to her, you are heartbreak incarnate. And it's true. She is damaged and she has done damage. It's... It's a tour de force performance by the main actress in the film that plays Cresha. It's raw. It's vulnerable. It's violent. It's feral. It's tragic. Um, it's about a woman who has destroyed herself and has destroyed those she she loves. And um, it's it's intense and it's absorbing to watch and I was I was blown away by it really yeah very blown away um, another film that I thought was good it's really painful to watch it's called Other People and it's by Chris Kelly and um, it's a, it has Molly Shannon in it and she plays a mother who's dying of cancer and her son um, who's like a TV writer. He comes and lives with her and his father, of course, um, and his two sisters. He he went to New York, I think, and he was writing for like SNL. And then he goes back to California where his family is and where his mother's dying. And 
once again, like Cresha, it's a family movie. A little bit of a dysfunctional family. Because he's gay. The main characters, the, he's gay. And his father doesn't accept it. Um, it's, it's about death. It's a film about death. It's about losing someone you love to cancer. Um, it's about the pain of that. It's about the tragedy of it. Um, there are moments of humor and there are moments of very deep, deep suffering. And Molly Shannon gives a pretty amazing performance. You may think of Molly Shannon as just this comedic actress, but in this film and in this particular role, she shows, she shows great range. And, um, it's, it was hard to watch at times. It was, I'm not gonna lie. It was, I cried. <laughs> I cried a little bit. I cried during Cresha too. Um, but I cry. You know, I'm an emotional person. Um, but other people, it's like, I really loved it. And, I, and other people may not, other people may not like films about that subject, but it was, it had this balance between um, pain and suffering and darkness and then the love that the family has for each other and the love that Molly Shannon feels for her children and, um, and humor, you know, at times they find things to laugh about and it just felt like it was one of those films you watch and you just think, you almost don't think you're watching a film. You think that you're watching like real life. Like it just feels so authentic and you just connect to it, you know? You connect to those characters and it's not often that you come across films like that, you know? So I think I think it's well worth watching for me personally. I mean, if if it's something that interests you, but it is a heavy movie because Molly Shannon's dying, and that's intense. You know, there's no way to sugarcoat it. You know, and it doesn't try to do that. It doesn't try to say, "Oh, well, everything's gonna be okay. Everything's gonna be all right." It's just about these characters trying to cope with the situation as best as they can. And sometimes they cry, and sometimes they laugh, and sometimes they don't know what to say or what to do. Um, another film I really liked um, was The Fits, and I don't know if... I'm sure it's been getting some attention, but it's about... Um, I love it because the main character is Af an African-American girl. And you don't see that a lot in cinema, as most of you know. Um, the whole film is um, focuses on on um, a gym, on a gymnastics, not gymnastics, a dance, or a school. Well, it's really a school. Okay, it's a school um, with African-American students. And um, they have dance class. They have... Um, they have like a gym where they the boys box and then the girls have a dance class and what happens is that one by one the girls start to um 
mysteriously they start to have these seizures where their um, their whole bodies shake and I think it's sort of based on something that happened a few years ago in a, in a town somewhere in the United States where um, people started having seizures or something like that and they thought it could be the water but then they started to think well maybe it's just this um, it's like hysteria there's it's a very quiet film it's it's a bit of a slow film there's not a lot of dialogue there's not a lot of talking it's by a woman director and um and it focuses on this little girl and she's in the dance class and she sees um all these girls start to have these seizures and um i mean some have said it could be like a metaphor about um you know going from a girl into a woman and the fears that come with that it could be like a larger metaphor you could interpret the film in different ways like well, what does the see what do the seizures mean why are they happening what does it you know what does it symbolize what what is the metaphor here um it's just I thought it was a really good film it's one of those films that'll stay with you um it's an unsettling film and I loved that it centered um an African-American girl it centered African-American girlhood black girlhood which you rarely see in films um there was a French film last year or the year before uh, by Celine Sciamma called Girlhood and that was about uh, black women in France and um, it was really good um, so we just rarely have these representations of black women um, that centers their subjectivity that centers their experience um, but the fits definitely does that daughters of the dust does that lemonade does that so we are getting more films we just need more and more and more um, but it's a haunting film it's the seizures are never explained and um, yeah it's just really really good it's one of those coming-of-age films that um, you you won't forget you'll definitely definitely like it another film that I really like um, and I just watched it tonight um, it's a short film it's called Sun Song and um, what is it by yeah it's a short film called Sun Song and it's about and it's only like 15 minutes long and it follows it just shows passengers on a bus in Durham North Carolina and I'm from North Carolina I don't live there now um, because of economic reasons I had to leave and so I live elsewhere um, but it was it was really interesting to see a film that was set in North Carolina and it made me homesick because made me remember my home that I didn't want to leave but I had to and Durham is 
I think it's where Duke University is, so people might think of it as maybe a ritzy place, but um, obviously um, there is poverty, you know, and um, and the director talked about how even though it's sort of 50-50 black and white in terms of a racial makeup that most of the people riding the bus were black which obviously speaks to the racism of the area and the economic um, the economic uh, issues uh, that black people still encounter and the inequality uh, in the area and it's just this it's it's a silent film there's no sound and it just shows a bus it shows the passengers it shows it's in the morning when the bus is starting out and then you see the light through the trees and um, sort of like Chantal Ackerman's South it shows a particular picture of the South um, and it centers African Americans and um, you see the different passengers on the bus and you know a lot of them are like looking out the window and you wonder what they're thinking and um, I remember when I was in college a few years ago and I would ride the bus and um, when you're on the bus you're like very aware of of a community of a sense of community of other people you know there's they're sitting right in front of you and I think you feel part of something I don't I don't know how to explain it it's like all of you are on the bus and all of you are on the way somewhere you're all on a journey to somewhere else um, you realize how much you have in common with people you know all of us are just kind of doing our best and trying to get through and trying to live and trying to survive and trying to get from point A to point B in our lives you know and of course the bus is the connection from point A to point B and then point B to point C and so it's this 15 minute little film and but it's like you see these people sitting on the bus and you just think well where are they going and what are they thinking about and you just get a sense of the humanity you know and the human condition and um, I don't know there was just something about it that I really really liked and at first I was like well why is it silent I thought well you know there should be more be more ambient sounds of like the bus and and all that and like what it sounds like on the bus but I think by the end I sort of understood it that without the sound it's more contemplative and you can can think more about it and it it leads to more reflection I think and maybe the no maybe the um the ambient sound would have been a distraction or would have just been noise um that took you away from the central image of people sitting on a bus and going about their lives and um it reminded me kind of of Manicomina uh, a documentary that came out a few years ago about 
pilgrims uh, going to a mountain in Nepal or going to like a sacred place in Nepal and the camera just is in they had to go in these cable cars to reach the mountain in Nepal and so the documentary is just um it's just the different people that are in the cable car and what they do and you have very old people and then you have very young people and and they just sit there in the cable car and you just see them and you just observe them and that was another film where I felt like really showed how we have how we are all different yes but we do have things in common and we do have similarities and and um you know we're all human beings we're all just trying to to live you know and survive and why does it have to be so much more complicated than that but it reminded me of Menachemina and just just I like just observing people you know if you're someone that you just like to watch people like you just like to sit on a bench and and look at humanity pass by it's it's Sun Song is like that. It's like just you get to observe people. You, know, you just get to see, well, you know, what do they do when they're sitting there and they don't think anybody's watching them or they're looking out the window or. I mean, those are really quiet moments, but they're moments that are imbued with meaning, you know, and there's something compelling about them. Like, I don't know, I like to watch people. I can't help it. <laughs> And the final film that I'm going to talk about, I know I've talked about so many, and um, this podcast got really, really long. Um, the last one is Tempestad, um, and I was able to see it on Festival Scope as well, and um, it's set in Mexico, it's a documentary, and it's about two women and um you don't really see them it's it's in voiceover and one woman tells her story of being arrested and sent to prison in mexico for something that she didn't do and it's basically something that the government does that they'll just arrest random people for crimes even if they didn't commit the crimes just to placate people to make people think oh we're doing something about um the crime right or we're we're doing something you know and it was really about her experience of being in prison and um how horrible that was and how traumatic it was and then the second woman tells her story and her story is about her daughter who's missing who disappeared and she doesn't know what happened to her and the mother works in the circus and um I want to say her daughter did too with her and she has other daughters but um but um her daughter disappeared and um she doesn't know what happened to her she um, she never heard from her again. It's like she vanished into thin air. And so these two women tell their stories and it's about the violence against women in Mexico in particular, you know. And, um, 
about the trauma that both of them have endured. And you can just hear in their voices, you know, the pain and the suffering uh, and the scars, you know, how wounded they are. But especially the woman that has lost her daughter. There's this scene where she's uh, rehearsing, you know, for the circus and she's sitting with these other women um, who also work in the circus and obviously they knew her daughter and they're just sitting there and they're like laughing and then all of a sudden the mother starts crying and um, and I think she says something like she's just very grateful for these women, you know, they're in her life. And um, the other women start to cry with her. And it's just like, I sobbed and sobbed at that scene. Like, I can't even explain that scene. It was about grief. It was about, like, I've had those moments where I've been happy. Where I've been like, oh, I've been really joyful. And, um, and then all of a sudden it'll seize me. It'll just seize me. That... That my father's not here, you know, and that he's dead, and that he'll always be dead, and and I'll start to cry because I'm so happy, and I never thought I could be happy again, and and I wish he was here, you know. It's like sometimes you're so grateful for a moment of laughter or a moment of joy. That it makes you cry and it makes you sad. Because you might not feel that all the time. The The grief and the sadness makes you more grateful. When you have those moments. And I thought that scene captured that in a way that I hadn't seen before. It's about women supporting other women. You know. And even the woman who was in prison, it was other women that helped her and that took care of her at times. So you see the violence that women endure in in that society. And then you also see how strong women are and how loving and tender and supportive and how women create communities of resistance, communities of love. But the damage has been done, you know, and both women um, are wounded. They're very wounded, and and that film, <laughs> that film, it's a documentary, and it's just, I've never seen a film like it. Like, it just totally wiped me out and haunted me, and I couldn't stop thinking about it, and I still can't stop thinking about it. Like for days afterwards, I was thinking about this film. I was thinking about these women. I was thinking about their stories. I was thinking about the images that I saw. It just, it, to me, it's a masterpiece. And if you get a chance to see it, it's called Tempestad. T-E-M-P-E-S-T-A-D. Tempestad. It's I think it's Spanish for storm, for the storm, and um, it's unique. 
and it's special and it's important and it's I had to talk about it that's why I saved it for last I've just never seen anything like it and it affected me so completely like it affected my body um, and my mind and just everything and if, if you're able to see it you must you must you must <laughs> well that's all I have to say I know I've talked a lot and I've talked about a lot of films and um I'm gonna stop here I've put you through enough if you if you listen to the whole thing thank you and I appreciate it um, but these are the films that I thought were really important and that had a huge impact on me this year and there were others but at some point I have to stop right so I can't talk about all of them so um, I hope this was helpful I hope you see some of these films or have seen some of them and um, yeah thank you for listening